0: Talking about chicken a la king, mango, and garbanzo, tabo, potatoes, and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil Zucchini ziti. granola, fruit bar. Yeah. Look at all this beautiful food. Mm. Welcome to Green Eggs and Dan, everyone, where I interview amazing people with amazing minds, but all I care about is what is in their fridge. My guest today, I don't think I've been this excited for a guest in a long time. Uh, we are across the world. Constantine where are you you're in germany
1: I'm in beautiful baden-baden germany so um it's we're going it's, international it, yeah it's quite far away i guess but um nice talking to you yes
0: constantine is someone who i have absolutely been stalking on the internet lately uh he has the distinction of being a master of wine and has my absolute favorite youtube channel on wine which I highly recommend to anyone who loves wine or wants to get into wine. Please welcome Constantine Baum. Yeah, that was quite an introduction. Well, I'm telling you, I started this show mostly because I love food, but also so that I could uh, meet people and become friends with uh with people who I want to to meet. So this is this is totally a personal this episode is for me, okay? It's not for the <laughs> listeners.
1: <laughs> I hope there's something for the listeners in it as well.
0: <laughs> no, I think there absolutely will be. And the you know, I am a huge wine nerd and I love wine, not nearly at your level, but um I do love wine and I've been looking around for teachers and for good channels and stuff like that on the internet and there's almost nothing out there. There's definitely not and then I, I came across you and the quality is so great and the videos are so great and you have such an infectious personality uh which again I don't I don't know that you were ever an entertainer or you ever took classes on this or or if it's just comes to you naturally but I'm just uh, completely obsessed with
1: your videos. Thank you. That's very nice. I, I'm definitely not a trained entertainer. I mean, <laughs> my my wife will never say that I'm very entertaining. I think I can just make this happen in front of a camera in my wine cellar. I mean, the videos are great.
0: But before we get uh, to your career and all that, I want to get into your fridge. Uh, you guys can see Constantine's fridge on my Instagram at Stand Up Dan. I'm going to share the screen right now. So this is... This is different for green eggs and dan i had i actually asked constantine to share uh his wine cellar with us so we've got some pictures of you here yeah uh, in the <laughs> cellar
1: <laughs> um, I, I i'm actually quite protective of my wine cellar i've never there There are quite a lot of people who asked me to do a wine tour of my cellar and i never never wanted to do it because i wanted to keep the mystery alive but so so you you get some very rare insights <laughs> into into the mess that is my wine cellar. So this is a Green Eggs and Dan exclusive here.
0: Okay. That's uh, uh, this is such controlled chaos, this wine cellar. Okay. So we've got what I'm imagining is wall-to-wall racks. The floors are all covered in bottles of wine.
1: Um, it's complete mayhem. Yeah, I actually cleaned it up two months ago, and now it looks like that again. I I just get so many bottles of wine all the time, and I taste quite a lot of wines. So you can see some of them have the capsules removed, um, because I use this thing called Coravin to to pour out uh, and and taste the the more expensive wines, so that I can go back to them um, later on. So those are just sample bottles, just oh wow,
0: all these have been Coravin, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those should, should have been Corvind and, and then there's just, yeah, random other stuff. I also have a, an online retail company. So, so I also have some, uh, well, sample bottles coming in for that. And yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's a big mess. So, so I definitely have enough wine in my life. <laughs> Are there any
0: bottles that you are, what is your your proudest, your proudest achievement in what, which bottle are you like, Oh my God, I can't believe I got my hands on this.
1: Oh, uh, um, I, I have quite a few like old Bordeaux's that, that are quite nice. And I'm looking forward to, to opening, uh, in, in the future. I got, I got this bottle of white amitage from Schaaf that I came across, uh, the other day while trying to clean up this mess. Um, and that's definitely something that I want to open because it's like from, I think it's 96. So it is definitely, uh, well aged and it should be quite nice. Hopefully still that's, that's, uh, more of a nerd wine, like uh white Hermitage is not something that a lot of people get into. Um, I also have some really nice burgundies. One of my, um, the, the key moment, one of my key moments in my wine career was opening or tasting a Francois Lamarche, uh, La Grand Rue from Burgundy, which is like, uh, this small vineyard plot right next to Romani Conti, which is, uh, the, the most, uh, famous, uh, vineyard, I guess, in, in Burgundy. And, uh, and, and I have, I have something from Lamarche on my shelves as well. So, so I've, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, have quite a few um interesting bottles there that I'm looking forward to opening one day.
0: So, I want
1: to make this episode not
0: just uh, you know, good for wine nerds, but also for people who love wine and are intimidated by wine and want to get into wine because I do feel like you make it very accessible and you've climbed the mountaintop. So, you are a master of wine, uh which I d- people don't understand how insane that is to get to that level. It's uh can you explain a little bit of what that means?
1: Well, the Master of Wine is a qualification that was, uh, was, was started in the 1950s. And, um, um, well, it's organized by the Institute of Masters of Wine, which is based in London, um, uh, of all cities. People don't really associate London with, with wine, but it's actually a really great city when you want to taste because there are so many great old, uh, wine merchants there and everyone, wants to be on the British markets and, and, and they have to go through London in order to get there. So there's lots of tastings there. And it's basically, um, a qualification where you have to, uh, know a lot of in depth knowledge on the theory of wine. So there are, uh, exams where you have to write essays on, on viticulture, analogy, wine business, and current uh, events. Uh, So you have to be able to write well and know a lot uh, about wine, really in-depth knowledge. And the other part, which is probably the more famous or more astonishing uh, aspect of it is um, the blind tasting part. So you have to identify 36 wines in uh, three uh, uh, blind tastings. So you have on three days, you have consecutive days. You have twelve wines to taste, and you have to say what is the what is the grape variety, where is it from? If it's from a classic region like Bordeaux, you have to also say whether it's from Pauillac or Saint Julien. You have to know your vintages. You have to say how the wine was made, whether it was aged in barriques or. In stainless steel tanks, um, whether, whether it's a high end wine that could be sold in top notch restaurants or in specialized retail for 50 euros, or whether it's a really cheap entry level wine, which could be sold in discount markets for five euros. So, so there are quite a lot of things that you actually have to pick up from the glass and, and, uh, and then, well, identify, um, the wine according to what you've picked up. I always compare it to Sherlock Holmes who walks into a room. He knows a crime was committed there, but no one really knows who was the, the murderer. And then he looks around and picks up the, this, uh, these little pieces of uh, soil on the floor. And through his knowledge, his theoretical knowledge of the salts in London, he uh, identifies the area where the murderer is from. So, so that's kind of, that's kind of how it, how it works. You really have to know your wines and go really deep into it in order to be able to, to do all that.
0: Yeah. I feel like. It's interesting because I got into wine because I, I love drinking wine and it's delicious, which I think is the best reason to get into wine. Yeah, <laughs> And then, you know, the more you go into the weeds, there's this kind of mystery aspect like you're talking about of solving a mystery, which I think becomes really interesting and nerdy. And it's like, obviously we love drinking alcohol because alcohol is really fun and it makes your brain uh, have a good time. But there's something about intellectualizing it, which is like, makes it, I don't know if it's like justifying drinking, uh, but it's like add, it's like adding this element of like, oh, I'm solving a puzzle. Um, and that's so fun to do and to try to figure out how they did it and how they made the wine and what went into it. Um, there's this nerd aspect of it that I think starts to kind of almost take over like the the oh, I just like to drink wine thing of like, oh, I want to solve this little mystery. Yeah. Um did you feel like that was a transition that you made that for you two, or from the beginning were you nerding
1: out of well, flavors? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, I was also. Um, I I just thought it was quite interesting um, because I I always liked learning things, and wine is like this bottomless barrel of knowledge. So 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 you really you can can really go deeper and deeper and never reach the bottom. And, and that's kind of what I liked. And then I also like to get drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so I also like that aspect. But, but for me now, it, it is mostly, um, I, I think, I mean, it's one of the oldest cultural products, um, there is. So, so wine has been with us for at least 8,000 years, probably much longer than that. So we've been making as a, as a human civilization, we've been making wine for such a long time. So, so it's everywhere. It's part of our culture. It's part of our religions. It's part of uh, the way we get together. It's part of uh, every ceremony or many ceremonies where you kind of raise a glass, toast to to whatever you, you are celebrating. So um, I, I really love that aspect. That is really So deeply ingrained in our culture. And it's also so multi layered. So there's one, on one side, there's the knowledge part. And on the other side, there's this, um, this part where you experience something, where you uh, taste something and try to understand it just by using your nose and your tongue. And, um, you can actually connect back to really old memories through the smells that you get from the glass. For example, every time I smell, a Bratty wine, which is a flaw in some wines, but, but it can also be really nice when it, when it's, when it's uh, well managed. It basically smells like barnyard. Uh, it l- smells like horse stables. I always, I'm always taken back into my childhood memories when I, when I was on holidays, we always went to this place where there were horses. And I really still very vividly remember the smell of the leather of the saddles and the, the, uh, the horse dung in in the stables. So, so that's, that's, I think, quite fascinating. I think there are very few products, very few things in the world that can do that. And, um, I think that's also one of the reasons why there are so many people really excited about wine. I mean, there, there are very few bus moving consumer goods that you can buy for one dollar or one thousand dollar. An item so so i mean you can grab a bottle of wine for one dollar at least in germany you can uh, in in some shops and you can also get get the same product basically fermented grape juice for one thousand dollars uh somewhere else or even ten thousand dollars and that's yeah. also fascinating and that's that just i i think that just shows how um how important it is to some people how, how um excited some people are about certain aspects of wine that they are prepared to spend this much money it's not always wise <laughs> i get yeah. it to say that but but it's but it's uh it kind of highlights uh, how much value some of us give to give to this
0: product so i also feel like there's never been a better time to be intimidated by wine than now because there's so much there's so many different things going on now you've got your uh, conventional uh, made wine, you've got your cool natural wines. And especially in LA, it's like, you know, people are all about the naturals and they poo-poo on the conventional. And then they realize, wait, a lot of these conventionals are actually made naturally. And then people are like, what the hell is natural wine? Does it mean that the label was made by a graffiti artist? Or (laughs) does it actually have anything to do with the wine? Um, So there's like, it's almost like just when you thought, okay, I'm getting a grasp of this. They bring in this whole new category of like of natural wines and now it's like okay now i have to now i have to understand this and i have to understand but no one can really give a straight answer on what is natural is it biodynamic is it organic is it a combination of the two um so it just gets really really confusing i think for a lot of people i mean again you are very good at demystifying wine especially on your channel uh what is what is someone to do What advice do you give to someone who wants to get into wine and doesn't want to look like an idiot um, or make a fool of themselves uh, when going to a restaurant or going to the wine shop?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think you're right. Um, The wine world has probably never been as complex and diverse as it is now. Um, I I think when when I talk to older masters of wine, Back in the days when they passed their exams in the sixties and seventies or whatever, there was basically they, they had to know about Bordeaux, Burgundy. Champagne, a little bit, Germany, Mosul, maybe some Rioja and some Chianti or um, uh, stuff like that. Right. But that was kind of the wine word. That, that's it. If you, if you, I, I have some old editions of Hugh Johnson's Wine Atlas, which is like one of the standard, um, uh, books in, in any, any wine nerds uh, library and um and and the wine world was just so much more limited back then and now wine is everywhere there's wine being produced uh, in england there's wine being produced in new york state or well, well there's wine being produced pretty much everywhere in the us i guess um in lots of different places in china china is one of the biggest producers now so there's a lot of wine now but on the other hand, it's also, it has never been safer uh, to pick up a bottle of wine, I think. There was a time when even the best producers were sometimes producing terrible wine, like really shit wine, uh, in, in poor vintages because back, back then they didn't have the knowledge. They might not have had the money to, uh, to make sure that even in a bad vintage, they, they are able to harvest healthy grapes. So times were much more difficult and, and it was more difficult to produce good wine. Nowadays, the, the standard of quality is, is pretty high. So picking up a bottle, not knowing anything about the wine is much safer today than it was back then. Mm. And then, and then it's really, I think that it's really about, um, Uh, deciding on how far you want to go. I I think it's always good to start with one place and then work your way out from there. I think there's nothing wrong with uh, just tasting wines from one or two regions or one country for a bit in order to get yourself used to it and then venture out into the rest of the world. It's always good to talk to people and listen to people who might have tasted a little bit more or might have uh, had more experience with, with the, the topic in order to further your horizon. That doesn't mean that you just have to take on what they say and uh, accept what they say as gospel, but it always helps to kind of point you into new directions and then try to figure out whether you actually like that style of wine or not. And with natural wine, it's um, I think it's, it's, it's actually beneficial that there's something like that. I just don't necessarily like the term all that much because natural wine suggests that there's something better about it, more natural, but wine isn't a natural product. So if you, if you ever. Like find a wild vine growing up a tree and pick up the, the berries that have dropped down on the, on the ground and taste them. That's probably the closest you can get to, uh, to natural wine. Right. Um, if wine is made by humans, it's a cultural product and, uh, and, and they will, they will have an impact on the taste and, and smell of the wine. The only thing that might distinguish it is the difference in terms of ingredients and products that you use. While making the wine, but um, this, this sulfur discussion, I think is going a little bit too far because sulfur is not all that bad. It's not the devil. There's some people who react badly to it, um, but, but it's not the worst thing in the world. But I think natural wine makes wine a little bit more interesting. There are some people there that really try out exp- amazing stuff and, and, and come up with wines that, that tastes delicious but quite a lot of it is also pretty bad <laughs> I yeah. got to say so 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 yeah play around with it a little bit but but i think it's good to know the classics as well i think and um, just tasting natural wines um is not really um, it doesn't really help you understand the wine world
0: it is a little bit of a novelty in a way although there are some it's funny i went down a deep dive of natural wines and i was like let me try there's got to be some stuff that i like here and i settled on One of my friends who worked at a wine shop, she gave me a mixed box and there was one that I loved, which was like the most, it's the least, it's the most traditional natural wine you could get, which is basically like a La Pierre uh, Morgon. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's
1: one of the OGs, really. Yeah. yeah.
0: So there is this, like, I do think there is this area where they intersect, which uh, some of the wines are really, really uh, beautiful. Yeah. So, okay. I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and they're like, okay, this guy's a master of wine. He's probably drinking, you know, $100 bottles of wine every night. And, I think that the interesting thing about people who have reached the pinnacle of a field have reached the mountaintop is that a lot of times it's quite the opposite. I mean, I'm going to sound super pretentious, everyone. So get ready. But like, I, I love Rolexes and I collect Rolexes and I got all the expensive ones and the, and the ones that everyone was talking about and the hip ones. And once I was done with that, I now all I want to get is like weird like under a thousand dollar you know under five hundred dollars sometimes watches that are just like random and like cool and fun and nerdy and it's almost like you kind of had to get to that point up top to be able to be like okay this is actually what i want where i want to live is like in this little nerdy area that doesn't have any of the pretension does that is that accurate to to your experience with wine
1: well i mean i definitely sometimes enjoy drinking a, a great wine from burgundy or bordeaux or champagne and if you want that you usually have to spend quite a lot of money on it but i think the more you know about wine the less you actually have to spend on a bottle of wine because there's so much amazing wine being produced in regions that no one knows and if you know a lot about, about wine, you also find the, the value wines, the, the ones that are, um, actually quite, quite uh, cheap for what they are. I mean, uh, I rarely drink wines that are, um, really, really cheap, but, but I, I also drink a lot of wines that are like in the 20, 30, 40 euro range. Um, because there's so much great value in that segment of the market. You can find like amazing wines from, Places like Savoie in France that uh, people don't really uh, know and appreciate um, as much. There, there's amazing wine being produced in in uh, some places in, in South America, and in Argentina and Chile, which which are often provide great uh, great value for money. Um, and there's amazing wines being produced in Germany as well that are still pretty much under the radar. So I think the more you know about wine, the less you should actually be excited about tasting these high, high, super high end wines. You know, you might have seen my video on, on that bottle of Petrus that I, that I bought uh, last year. And uh, Petrus is one of the icon wines in the world. It's from this region called Pomerol in, in Bordeaux in France. And it's a very nice wine, but it's also very much hyped and therefore really expensive. I spent $3,000 roughly on it wow. on one bottle okay. and, and, and opened it. And I think I rated it 93 points or 90. And I think 93 points or 92 points, which is not like an amazing score. I've tasted lots of wines around that uh, quality level. That cost 20, 30, 40 euros. So, so there's a big difference. Obviously, you pay a lot of money for the hype and uh, the name uh, of the wine. But then again, it's also a nice experience doing that and sharing that with my community and, and, um, well, allowing people that might not be able to, to afford a bottle like that to experience that in a way through me. Um, and I I enjoy having fun with that kind of stuff, but, but it's, but it is a fact that, um, the 100 us dollar wine is not 10 times better than the 10 us dollar wines. And the 100 us dollar wine is also not 10 times worse than the 1000 us dollar wine. So, so it's not at some point, the connection between the price and the quality just uh gets very very loose and uh and uh, well um and then it's just up to whether you want to have that expensive bottle or the equivalent of the rolex on your arm
0: so you brought up something which is like my favorite thing about wine which is unsung regions i love the regions that most people would not look at again like you said bordeaux burgundy uh you know some Barolos, I would say, some Brunellos, like some, I feel like there's such a huge demand around the world. And once like China and the like music industry gets into a certain wine, (laughs) I I feel like it just, the prices are just like, don't make sense anymore. Um, You know, you go to a restaurant, you look at the list of, of red burgundies or white burgundies, it's like, everything is like 5x any other bottle of wine. And look, there's uh, talking about value and what's worth it and what's not worth it is a whole different conversation. But there are definitely regions that seem to seem to uh, buck the trend and have really good value. So, what are uh, what are the top regions for you right now that you're looking at that you're like, I can't believe these wines are at this price point?
1: It obviously always depends on your your taste as well and what you like. But I mean, for me, Germany is still very much undervalued. German Riesling. Uh, Our main grape variety uh, is considered by many one of the best, if not the best white grape variety in the world, uh, together with Chardonnay probably. And, And the wines are still really cheap, even from the best producers and the best sites. They're getting more and more expensive, but they're still relatively cheap. I think if you go to the Iberian Peninsula, you really can't go wrong. I mean, Portugal is extremely cheap and there's so much value for money. There, when it comes to white wines, red wines, fortified wines, I think, uh, Portugal has it all and produces really great wines at, uh, spectacularly uh, low prices. Also, uh, so some wines that can age such a long time. I've, uh, opened quite a few old bottles of Madeira, uh, on my channel and port and they, um, they can, yeah, age for more than a hundred years. Some of them, if you go to Rioja, um, I think there's also still so much value there, even the, classics uh, even the really famous producers are still pretty pretty cheap uh, and offer great value for money i think if you're in france for example the south of france is still dirt cheap uh, also stuff like coteauron i think coteauron is one of the uh, best uh, price value wines there is i mean there's some coteaurons at, t- at 10 euros in 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 germany at least I, I guess in the us it would be more like 20 uh, us dollars they uh, that that provi- that give you so much joy and uh, pleasure. Um, so, so I think there's definitely quite a lot still there. Beaujolais, you mentioned, a region that produces great wines um, at pretty low prices, though. So there are so many places. I mean, in the New World, like I said earlier, Argentina, Chile, is, are still comparably cheap. I also think when it comes to like unsung heroes or wines that are great laterals for the classics uh like for for great white uh, burgundy uh if you go to new zealand you you have such beautiful chardonnays really really beautiful wines that are really still very much undervalued compared to Mm. to what you get uh from from burgundy so so there's Still so much great wine, uh, at great prices around, but everyone complains about Bordeaux and Burgundy because, well, I don't know. I, I they, p- people got used to drinking those wines and they are, they can be really amazing. But I think especially Burgundy is a hit and miss. And you sometimes spend so much money on a bottle of wine that is pretty boring or below average. Uh, and if you spend a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine, you definitely don't want below average. So.
0: So, two things off of that. number one, I have to give a shout out to my buddy Piero, who started uh a winery in Argentina called chakra which, ah, right, uh, yeah, yeah, is making fantastic it. uh fantastic wines, and you know he's the heir of the Sasakaya, you know, which is one of one of the most expensive wines in the world, and yeah. he went to Argentina and he's making a wine there that's you know he's got high end and low end but very very accessible and and delicious wines,
1: um yeah, yeah. for sure, great wines, yeah.
0: Yeah. And then you talk about uh some uh, burgundies not hitting the mark. I lately have been nerding out on Oregon. I went to Oregon and uh tried a, a bunch of great wines with a bunch of buddies of mine. We we went for a little wine trip. And the pinos that they're that are coming out of Oregon, I think in my opinion are like some of the best that I've had, especially in the in in you know from an American standpoint. Um, I'm a huge fan of like uh, you know I have a, you have German pride I have American pride I'm I'm really trying to to push uh, American wines although you know some of them obviously have a real heavy hand with the uh, with wood and whatnot but I do think it's a it's a kind of a cool time for American wines right now like you said New York State is making some Rieslings that are awesome um, Michigan is making Beaujolais. Like such crazy stuff is happening. And I do feel like the Pacific Northwest, uh, Washington and Oregon are making super interesting wines. Um, have they gotten uh, the respect in
1: Europe? Like, like they're getting here. Um, I think not, not probably, probably not quite. I mean, I, I've, I've been to Washington state and Oregon and I've, and I, and I do quite a lot of things uh, with California. So, so I, I really, um, love the wines from, from the West coast, um, as well, but, but most of them, I mean, the thing is the American market is quite strong. You just said it There's like a national pride in your products, um, which is a great thing. Uh, when it comes to wine, there's, there's amazing wines coming out of, uh, the U S so, so, so I can understand that and people are just prepared to spend much more, on those wines than they are in, in Europe. So, mm-hmm. so quite a lot of those wines don't get exported as much. Some wineries want to be represented in, in, in uh, Europe and, uh, even of the higher end wines because, because they just want to be there, even though they could sell their whole production in, in the US probably, but they, they also want to be in some of the nice restaurants in, in Europe. So, so they are trying to get into the market and there is, a growing interest in in those wines as well, but it's still um, a little bit slow. And the thing is, I mean, Europe, there's so much competition from European wine producing countries. Um, so it's some, sometimes not so easy to get your foot into the door. But I think especially like in California, if you go to Santa Barbara, I really love um, that area and, and yeah. I, 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 like stuff like, uh, Gavin, wines or, or au bon climat on this, those kinds of wines. They, they are still reasonably priced and they are really exciting and really interesting. They're different. There's, uh, there's quite a lot of amazing producers in Sonoma and also in Napa that make, make really great wines that are a little bit more to a European palate as well, probably like, Kathy Cor- Corison in in uh, in Napa or Hirsch Vineyards in Sonoma, so so there there are quite a lot of uh, it's, it's really interesting more new wave producers that also grab the attention of of uh, European sommeliers and some of them end up on those wine lists. But when it comes to volume, they are not really uh, very well represented. And I think Washington State and Oregon are even less uh, represented in Europe than California is because I guess for them, it's still, um, not so easy to, to, um, uh, well, do mar- a lot of, a lot of marketing in the European market. California is just so much bigger. So, yeah. so they, they have a better presence here. So, um, it's, it's uh, difficult for them. And, and I guess, I mean, when, when it comes to Oregon and Pinot Noir, um, there are quite a lot of really great new wave, um, Pinot Noir producers. All over the world now. So, so, so there's, there's competition there. I mean, as Germans, we've stepped up our game when it comes to Pinot. So there's really nice Pinot's coming out of Germany now, out of Austria, um, out of, out of, uh, um, all different kinds of places. So, so there's, there's uh, fierce competition, I guess. And, yeah. And, and if you're in the US and you have your customers there and you can sell your wine then there there might not be a, such a strong incentive to to move to Europe and and sell wine here as well
0: i'm surprised that there's a big market for let's call it so napa cabernets have such an interesting like loaded uh kind of uh cultural um you know uh definition behind them like you hear the expression bro cab it's like very like Guys with huge cigars, just drinking these like you know fifteen percent alcohol wines that are you know can be pretty one note. Uh, but it's like definitely like all of my very rich friends. That's all they drink. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> my rich friends who don't know about wine, all they do is spend thousands and thousands of dollars on Napa Cab. Um, yeah. Which I'm so I'm surprised that that's like kind of a a, a that's the one that's that's hopped over to Europe. Um, because to me it does seem like probably one of the less interesting wines that we have. Even though I get that it's probably the most expensive and all that, but um, I don't know if you feel the same way or not.
1: Um, I think I think there's quite a lot of diversity when it comes to Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa, and sometimes every everything is kind of shoot into this one profile. But but uh, even some of those icons like uh, Screaming Eagle, uh, I was actually quite surprised when i first tasted screaming eagle um how how elegant the wines can be um and, so and screaming eagle ref-
0: for for people listening are like what are they like a couple thousand or, a bottle yeah, yeah yeah that's
1: that's uh super culty. That would still be considered a steal if you pay a, a few thousand uh, for a bottle of screaming Eagle. <laughs> yeah so tell me
0: how how did that happen by the way how did you did they did they did are they bringing you to the wineries are they like come try this wine
1: um no not not with uh, screaming eagle we actually i was i was uh, in napa on a on a mw trip so um, as masters of wine we we also go on trips together which is which can be really fun and we went to california and went to napa and i think uh, she's the sales uh, head of sales for screaming eagle she's also a master of wine and she organized this uh, session where we talk where we had the winemaker which was a really uh, impressive guy who was more like a philosopher than than a winemaker he was he he put quite a lot of thought into winemaking which is not necessarily something that you think when you think called napa cabernet sauvignon winemaking but but uh, and then we 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 did this uh, we we did this exercise where we tasted the different elements of the blend and then tasted some wines uh from from the estate but we didn't go to the estate i think it's it's very difficult to actually do anything there it's it's kind of like this this place that they try to keep a secret as much as they can i think if you go to to napa you you i mentioned kathy Corison, which is one of the more interesting uh more well old generation uh napa cabernet sauvignon winemakers who is making really Elegant and refined, uh, wines. And then there's also, uh, stuff coming out of the, the mountain regions, uh, like Maya which is for me a really fascinating kind of, uh, Napa Cabernet Sauvignon. So the mountain Cabernets, they, they are, uh, also really, really ex- interesting. So, so I think there's more to it. I, I, I think Napa often gets, gets the reputation like these soupy, inky, r- super concentrated wines. But I think, um, that's not the whole picture. I think there's also um, movement there. I think winemakers are trying to dial down a little bit and and uh, extract a little bit less and pick a little bit earlier. The interesting thing is, I mean, if you compare Napa to Bordeaux, in Bordeaux you usually have to pick the grapes, or in the past at least you had to pick the grapes at a certain point before the rains came. So so you had to find this uh, this spot where where the grapes were ripe. But uh it didn't start raining yet. The autumn's ra- autumn rains weren't, weren't weren't there yet. And in Napa, it's kind of like you can pick whenever you want, basically, because there's no rain uh, coming in in autumn. So so right. so so you can uh, either pick in August or pick in October. So and and then and that basically influences your style. And more winemakers, I think now some of them at least uh, try to experiment with going the other way and trying to make more fragrant, elegant cabernets
0: yeah so um for people who don't know the later you pick the grapes the more ripe they get the more sugar content there is the higher the alcohol um yeah. right in the wine and a lot of that is kind of the robert parker effect where he uh he, he selected for these kind of big more powerful wines and so everyone's palate kind of kind of adjusted to that but it does seem like it's a uh, like it's like it's going back and just to give a little context, like, cause people always talk about the judgment of Paris where a Napa Cabernet beat a uh, Bordeaux. That wine, I think it was Ridge. Um, no, It,
1: it was a uh, stack sleep. The, I think the 71 or 73, but it was, yeah, but it, was it's, it was stack sleep, uh, stack sleep wine salad. Yeah.
0: I remember looking it up though. And it was like, it was like somewhere in the 12% alcohol, something yeah. it was a super low, which for a Napa Cabernet is, is insane to hear that. Cause they're all at 14 and a half now.
1: Yeah, but I mean uh if you do if you taste old Napa cabernets, they were much leaner, much fresher. Um and and uh they they actually aged really well. Not all of them obviously, but but the good ones aged really well. And then there there was like there was a state change in style, especially in the nineties where where people really went uh to the extreme when it came to extraction and concentration. Um but yeah there was a time when when the wines were were different probably also high higher yields so so um, they were producing more wine but but uh, uh therefore also a little bit leaner wine but th- some of those Napa cabernets from the 70s they are actually really beautiful and really yeah. really elegant wines
0: Okay, before we get to the questions that I ask every guest, I, I just quickly want to talk about your channel, which I love so much, because I've been following it for a long time. And it's very fun to see the evolution, because you definitely, you know, you, I, you see you get more comfortable in front of the camera. Yeah. As an actor, you can kind of <laughs> see these things. I'm like, oh, he's getting better. He's getting, and then the editing was getting better. And then the lighting was getting better and the camera angles. And it seems like you were, you really committed to to doing this. and. For someone who's not an actor and who probably never wanted to be a performer or a host, uh, I'm very impressed with your evolution, and and it seems like you found your voice, and and it's really really fun to watch. Thank so, you. um, what what made you decide? Okay, I want to take this knowledge and start making a channel.
1: Um, I think I I always used uh, social media or f- for a long time. Used social media, and one of the first influences there was uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Who was kind of like the first person to do like online wine video tasting things (laughs) on his blog. And he's obviously now doing completely different stuff, but, but I always thought there was something there. It was kind of, kind of interesting to me, but I, but I rarely actually use social media for consuming stuff. Like I I don't scroll uh, up and down on Instagram all day or TikTok. But I like to post stuff on there and I like to understand how it works. When it comes to YouTube, it's actually something that I really enjoy, like watching creators produce long form content and tell stories. Um, people like, uh, like Casey Neistat or, or, um, and those kinds of people who made, made vlogs. Um, that, and that is something that I found really interesting and 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 i always thought there is like a gap there because there's not a lot of wine content on youtube and i think there there are quite a few people who are interested in wine more people at least than they they are catered to uh on on this platform so so i i always wanted to do something and you actually talking about the video the earliest videos that you can still see on my channel but i have some Really old stuff that was actually in German and, and I actually took it down at some point because, because it didn't really make sense in, in, on my, on my channel anymore because it's not, uh, I'm not, I'm speaking in English on, in my videos and those were in German. Um, but also they were quite embarrassing. So, so you, you didn't even see, see the very, uh, very (laughs) bad beginnings of it all. But, but yeah, it was kind of when I, when COVID hit. I usually travel a lot. I'm like on, on the road, 50% of my, my time traveling through wine regions and stuff. And, and that was kind of when I thought, well, I have this free time now. Um, and I always wanted to do that thing, the YouTube thing. So why not dedicate some of it to this channel and, and make it really interesting and really good through the process of, of trying uh trying things out and watching tutorials i learned how to use cameras and set up lighting and uh use microphones and uh in the beginning i had really uh, the entry level uh, equipment now i have a pretty Pretty nice uh, setup here with uh, different cameras and, and lenses. And, uh, I'm, I'm a, a big sucker for fancy tripods. Uh, so all <laughs> <for laughs> the, the, the nice uh, tripods, um, and, and this kind of stuff. And, and I think, but, but the most important thing I think on YouTube still is not necessarily your equipment. It, it is the way you present, uh, the information that you want to share. So yeah. whether you st- you're telling a story or, uh, telling jokes, or uh, w- whether you want to share information, like teach. I, I mean, I'm not a teacher, but uh, that's kind of. I think uh, my my content is more educational. So yeah, and that that was really a, a process of experimenting, feeling more comfortable uh, in front of the camera. And in the beginning, it really gave me anxiety. I I just felt terrible uh, doing this, and like repeating the same sentence over and over again. And I'm obviously also not doing it in my first language, so. That makes it a little bit more difficult as well. And yeah, sometimes I was just sitting uh, upstairs drinking coffee and kind of trying to, um, trying to waste time because I didn't want to come down here and do this. And now it's obviously much, much easier. And, uh, I now understand more how to. Interact with the camera and what works and what doesn't work. Uh, But, but it's, it's, I think that's a beautiful thing. I mean, if you, you, you're like a talented entertainer. So, so you, 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 you have that gift uh, in you. And, and I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm German. So us Germans, we are never really great entertainers. And and...
0: (laughs) no, you're not known for your senses of humor, but you're, but you're very funny (laughs) on your, on your channel. Like your, your sense of humor is very fun. I will say so.
1: So well, but, you, you
0: you've you've bucked that german
1: stereotype <laughs> i'm also not not necessarily an an extrovert at all so so i i really had to learn how to do this and and you only i think i now i'm able to do that because i kind of see this f- setup as as a friendly setup the camera is kind of my friend so i can be the real me or i can be um, the the way i am uh, over dinner so so that that really helped, but but it took a long time to to get there. And I actually uh, also took some like uh, coaching lessons uh, with with the with the language coach to better understand how to how to use my voice. I, I want to do uh, acting classes just to learn a little bit better how to perform. Uh, on a stage, I, I don't know whether it actually will help me all that much here, but, but I think it's, it would be a fun, uh, thing to, to play around with a little bit. So, so yeah. And through that, it, it just kind of, kind of worked. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't really know how, how it worked, but, um, uh, my, my channel, um, at some point kind of blew up. There were a few videos that really, um, pushed, uh, my subscriber count. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I really love it. It's, it's a lot of fun sharing, uh, this with the audience, which is all around the world, which is also amazing.
0: Well, I think you're doing a great job at it. And I would recommend against taking any acting classes or anything. I like, (laughs) you don't want to, you don't want to overwork the dough. And I think that you're you're on the right path. You're doing everything right. So I, I I don't want someone to mess with it.
1: All right. Okay. (laughs)
0: There's no doubt that France, Italy, and Spain are synonymous with winemaking and wine culture. But arguably, it's France that lays claim to the world's most famed wine appellations, including Bordeaux and Burgundy. However, the history of wine doesn't begin with French wine, or Italian, or Spanish wine, or anything in Europe. Archaeological records indicate that wine was first produced in China around 7,000 B.C., followed by Armenia and Georgia around 6,100 and 6,000 B.C. respectively. In fact, researchers discovered the world's oldest winery in Armenia. Oh, and that hip orange wine you're drinking that you think is the hot new thing, that's the wine they were making. There's also evidence of early winemaking in ancient Iran, Egypt, Israel, Greece, Cyprus, and Sicily. Wherever there were grapes, wine was soon to follow. In fact, that's the main reason grapes were ever planted. In the Bible, the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is plant some grapes so he can make some wine. Now that is my type of prophet. Um, all right, so let's get to the questions that I ask every guest, starting with what is your earliest food memory?
1: It's probably not the earliest thing, but it's a very vivid memory, which is like uh, back when I was a kid, we always assembled on Saturday evenings in front of the television and watched watched uh, this show together. And my mother would bake um, uh, which is basically like a brioche, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, bread, uh, thing. And, and she would bake it in the evening for the next morning. So for Sunday breakfast, but in the evening, we got every one of us got the slice of brioche bread, uh, with butter on top. And that was just heaven. That, that was just, uh, magical for me. Nice. All right. What is your death row
0: meal? So you're on death row, one last meal and, uh, we obviously want to know what wine is
1: going to be in there as well. Oh, lots of wine. I mean, <laughs> what what do I have to lose at that point, I guess. <laughs> but but yeah, I think I mean, I I'm a I I do like I I think it's becoming less and less popular, but but I'm still very much a meat guy. I I don't eat meat every day or super regularly, but I really enjoy having a good piece of meat. And for me, that's like a braised uh, lamb uh, shank or something like that. Uh, mm. Like Braised for eight to 10 hours in the oven. And then, uh, I, I'd eat that with Spätzle, which is like a German type of pasta. Um, yeah, it's like a,
0: it's almost like a gnocchi. It's like a German dumpling type thing.
1: Well, it's made, made with eggs and, and flour. uh, So it's not, there's no, no potato in there, but, but it's kind of, it has the, this kind of texture. It's, it's basically, you slice it. It's, it looks a little bit like, uh, crooked Tagliatelle pasta, basically yeah. small, small slices. So, um, but that's really soft and uh, juicy. And when you eat that with sauce, sauce, that's just really good. Okay. What well, wine? Oh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> I'd probably empty, uh, my whole wine collection here, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I think with the lamp, uh, you, sh- you should probably go for a really good, um, Syrah. So, so, uh, um, like, like a Cornas, uh, something, something like that, really concentrated and, and intense, uh, meaty uh, uh, Syrah or, uh, Pieter Sassi from, from Santa Barbara, which is a great producer of Syrah. And they're making really, really beautiful wines um that that would also be delicious and i, and I think i i i probably i mean i've i've quite a few bottles of, of wines that I, i'm always waiting to open them because they're like more expensive wines and and the the occasion never quite fits and I, I just have like a big tasting of like great bordeaux great burgundies and and try to drink as much as possible before yeah. before they they kill me <laughs> <laughs> what's the
0: best high end meal you've ever had
1: that's tricky because I mean I obviously get to go to quite a lot of nice restaurants and places and and when there where, where there's wine there's usually also good food but I think the best is actually was actually one of those top uh, restaurants um it's it's called Sonora which is like it's a 3-star Michelin restaurant in 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 Germany close to the Mosel and I went there with somebody and we had lots of really good wines and but the food was really amazing there was it's like very classic i i actually i i do like to experiment and try new things but i also really like the classics like um when i go to a place like that like uh, stuff like caviar and and uh, truffle and uh, great old traditional meat dishes made to perfection that's kind of that's kind of kind of what i'm after so so, so that was definitely a, a beautiful experience
0: nice uh, what is your best low-end meal you've ever had?
1: Um, I think it's kind of all kinds of street food, right? I mean, uh, when yeah. when when I there was a period when me and my girlfriend at the time we were like traveling around the world, and we we spent quite a lot of time in Southeastern Asia, and uh, like going through Bangkok, like the the street markets in the evening and eating all kinds of different weird and funky things, uh, off the street. And, and that food is obviously super cheap. You don't pay anything for it. Basically it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very cheap, but they made, make it with love and passion, uh, even though there might be rats running around on the ground, (laughs) but, but but the food is still clean and, and good and nice. Um, or, well, when we were, uh, in Indonesia, like eating mango like real mango ripe real mango out of a plastic bag they they sell that there, like uh at the beach and they cut it for you and then you basically eat it out of out of a plastic bag that's just heaven i've never i've never i i think i've never really tasted mango before um before that that period because that's kind of when you when you go to the place where this stuff grows um you get get the, the real quality you learn to understand the real quality that mango can have Beautiful.
0: wow i was convinced you were going to say currywurst but i will accept mango
1: <laughs> i'm not a big currywurst guy uh, that's a german thing but but it's i mean i i do eat it but it's not something that i'd ever rave about uh, okay
0: I, <laughs> um which brings me to my next question
1: what is your favorite drunk food well I mean that that probably is like a German thing uh döner kebab uh it's not a German German thing because it's more turkish uh, but it's a uh, very uh, like very popular in in Germany there's a kebab place like a döner kebab a turkish uh, döner kebab place on every corner basically and that's what you eat when you get drunk
0: <laughs> Yeah there's nothing better than that's like a shawarma, basically. There's nothing yeah. better than that when you're drunk.
1: Yeah, just meat and fat, and and that's all you need. Yeah. Uh, what's your hangover cure? To be honest, I I throw up when I get a hangover, so so I'm I'm like I'm the master of hangovers. I get get like the worst hangovers in the world. I, really? I, I don't get get them very often because I I usually don't drink a lot. Like I, I'm not a big drinker. Um, I'm more of a regular drinker, moderate drinker. But when I get uh, a hangover, it's like I I can't uh, I can't really do much, and I certainly can't eat. Otherwise, I would just throw throw up. I I throw up after drinking coffee, basically. So it's 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 pretty terrible. It's oh a, boy! <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. <laughs> that's why that's probably what keeps me in check. That's why why I'm I'm not like a uh, uh, two hundred pound uh, alcoholic, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I know. If I drink too much, I I uh, I'll be in trouble in the next morning.
0: Yeah, I mean, your life depends on you being able to keep drinking.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: What? Uh, by the way, I'm curious, how much do you drink?
1: Like, I I probably drink one or two nights per per week, week during the week, and on the weekend, I usually drink every every evening. Like on Friday, Saturday, I do I drink one. Uh, but I but I try not to drink too much. But it, but obviously sometimes I end up drinking a bottle. Um, but but it's not not uh, it's not something that I do very regularly. And I and I actually um, don't drink at least one month per year. So, so I usually do dry in January. So oh, you so do, huh. it, It's very important for me personally not to be uh, addicted to the stuff. I, I think I couldn't enjoy it anymore if I had to drink it like every every night. And and being able to kind of stay away from from it uh, for one month shows to me that i don't need it and it also gives me a different routine so it's not like you, you don't grab the the glass in the evening you just kind of drink tea or whatever else there yeah. is um but yeah yeah so so i try okay. to keep it in in check but but I, I, sometimes i i just go off so you're a one
0: to two, you're, you're like a one to two glasses a night, uh, on average type of guy. And then once in a while, it'll be a bottle.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that's probably right. I, I it's more, it's more like, yeah, it's more, more like one, one to two. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't follow the, the, um, suggestions from the WHO. So, so uh, they, yeah. they, they, they keep dropping, uh, the, the limit that you should drink, uh, it, it seems like every, every year. But, but yeah, now, I, I think, I think I, I, I do like to, to drink wine. Uh, so, so I, I think I don't have to drink wine. I think to do my job, and that's something that I sometimes think about, but I actually need to drink the stuff. I think you have to have had too much wine in order to really understand how it works. But, but, but I think I could probably not drink wine at all and just taste the stuff and spit it all out and still do what I'm doing. But then life would be kind of very boring then. Yeah. Right? So, so 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 sometimes you have to have, have to go crazy a little bit.
0: Yeah. Who's your favorite celebrity food personality or 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 drink personality too?
1: Yeah, difficult. I mean there're quite a lot of people that kind of I find interesting. Is it Luca
0: Maroni? It's Luca Maroni, isn't
1: it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I am I'm, I'm, I'm dreading the the moment when I ever meet him at some <laughs> event or tasting. That, that's going to be Kind of tough, I think, but, but yeah, no, it's not him. Um, uh, like in wine, um, I don't really have lots of idols, but there, there are quite a few people that I really like. I, I think w- when it comes to wine YouTube, for example, I really like Andre Mack, uh, who's, who's also making, uh, videos on wine. Uh, he's, he's a, he seems to be a really cool dude. I've never met him personally, but he seems to be really nice. Uh, when it comes to food people like chefs, uh, I actually, I mean, I'm I'm a former waiter so so I, I I trained as a waiter and uh if you're training as a waiter or if you've worked as a waiter you're basically conditioned to dislike chefs in general right <laughs> I mean that's some really great I, I obviously have friends who are who are chefs but and, and they're great people but but I'm not a big celebrity chef guy uh, but if it's if it has to be one person then then it, then it has to be Anthony Bourdain that's kind of Probably the most inspiring person when it comes to like making uh, video content and and travel content. If you look at the old Anthony Bourdain videos uh from the very beginning, not the parts unknown, but uh, no reservations. Yeah, that that was more like a YouTube production, yeah, really. Totally. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are YouTubers now that make spend much more money on their production. So, so, but but he was always really good at telling stories and I think I, I can still learn a lot from from his old uh old videos and and yeah and the stuff he did and obviously the books um as well so so that's probably the most ac- iconic one and I guess I mean the the great ones they they always die too young and and that that's probably also what what makes us glorify them even more so so right. I think he he's he, he's quite special.
0: Desert island food, you're trapped on a desert island, one food you're gonna eat for the rest of your life, you will never get tired of it, what is it?
1: I think that, that food doesn't exist, really, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think um, there isn't also a desert island wine for me, I, I, I really like the diversity of it, and I like to try stuff out, but but if you're Oh stuck yeah, that's on... a
0: better question, desert island wine. I definitely have a desert island wine. You don't have a desert island wine? What is it? Mine would be the La Pierre Morgon that I, that I talked about. All right.
1: Before. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful wine. But um but yeah, on a desert island, I mean, all of that, all of the wine will be cooked at some point anyway. So if you have like thousands of bottles of that sitting, don't around take somewhere it in too
0: literally. You can't. <laughs> no, you have a wine cellar on the desert island.
1: Yeah, I I just I can't. I couldn't say there's this one grape variety or this one region. That I that I could drink every evening, or would want to drink every evening. I think it's probably better not to drink anything. I think when it comes to food, I would kind of be very practical and go uh, nuts. I I love roasted almonds, and I think they're probably not as nutritious as as, as your desert island food should be, but, mm. but they at least keep well uh, on a desert island. So so you can you can store them for a long time. And I I, I eat lots of nuts. I actually roast. Uh, almonds and hazelnuts and uh, all those kinds of things at home as well so so that's kind of a hobby of mine so so i do like nuts okay let's go nuts one. on the on the island <laughs> nuts and no wine <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but oh. if i eat nuts i also like to drink a sherry so so maybe yeah, i take ah, a few more sherry
0: okay oh no one before that what is there a food that you can't stand eating
1: um, I, I eat pretty much everything, but one thing that really makes me gag is kidneys. I don't know whether anyone eats that anymore in, in, huh. in the US, but, but in Germany, there's some, still some areas where, you, where you do have that. And it's just disgusting. I, and like Lamb really kidneys? Asked. Yeah. Lamb kidneys or, yeah. or, uh, 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 veal kidneys. Um, I mean, they, they, they still taste and smell like urine. So, so why would you want to, why would you want to? Wanna... <laughs> <laughs> when you so, so, of... eat yeah, it. That's something that kidneys, I really
0: when you think about what the kidneys do yeah it doesn't really make sense to eat it. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I I mean that's that's definitely something that I would never want to eat again. I've I've tried it and and really hated it. But but apart from that I I'm I read it, eat everything. I like eat like uh, uh heart or stomach or uh, brains or meat fish everything. So so yeah I'm very yeah. very much open to explore.
0: Kidneys is a good one. Um Okay, final question. This is my favorite question. Uh what is or what are your restaurant pet peeves?
1: Yeah, I mean, well obviously like if you get bad service that's also terrible, but when when you go into a nice restaurant, sometimes they also overserve me, like not, not in terms of put too much food on the table, but but they they do too much because they most of them kind of know who I am and then they try to pull everything out of the hat and to try to do everything for me. And sometimes I, I, I don't really like that. I I appreciate it because I know what they, why they do it, but, but it's, but it's sometimes uh, just too much. And I just want to spend time with the people around the the table. And I think the best service staff, and that's kind of how I approach it when I was a sommelier, they are, they are there. In the right moments, but they—it's not kind of they—they they don't think that's that it's the restaurant is their stage. Hey, man, you
0: wanted to be a celebrity, and now you have to deal with it. Okay, this is how it goes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I never wanted to be a celebrity, and I, I definitely am not a celebrity. So, so, so that's that's definitely not the case. But but yeah, some sometimes that just gets gets a little bit too much.
0: Interesting. I feel the same way. It could, it could go either way. If I get recognized, I'm either going to have the best time, or it's going to be too much. No, but, uh, yeah, it's a good problem to have. It's a nice problem to have. Yeah. Uh, Um, Constantine, thank you so much. By the way, before we go, what is your daily drinker these days? Do you have a daily drinker that you're, that you're going to?
1: No, I mean, I, I, I drink lots of different stuff uh, all the time. This evening, I had like a sip um, at the office still because I had tasted uh, of uh, of uh, Roussette de Savoie from Domaine Chevillat, which is a stunning wine, but it's so esoteric that probably no one, no one uh, can can get it. Um, I, uh, I I currently really like to taste um, or drink uh, New Zealand Chardonnay, as I mentioned that earlier, uh, cumio River. Um, even the entry level stuff from New Zealand, that's just absolutely beautiful right now. I definitely drink more whites and reds. So, so I also, um, yeah, play around with, with some nice, uh, uh, große gewächs, uh, Rieslings, which is like, uh, like a Grand Cru Riesling basically, uh, kind of quality, but they tend to be uh, like between 20 and, uh, 50 euros. Uh, wow. so, so they're still affordable, but they, they can be really deep and really interesting. So, um, yeah, lots of different ones. You, you saw my cellar. You saw the, the mess on the floor. So, so yeah. that's kind of, that's yeah. kind of my, my daily diet. <laughs> I had a really fun, weird wine
0: last night that um, I my wine bar that I went to and the the Sommelier who I'm buddies with brought this over, um, Vince Vincent Couche.
1: All right. Okay. It's,
0: it's from the Champagne region.
1: Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? Voulez-vous yeah. coucher avec
0: moi? It's Pinot yeah. Noir and Chardonnay blend, which I've never even
1: thought that that's no. a possible thing no that's 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 interesting and and it was it was a it was Pinot made as a white wine or yeah or what yeah okay,
0: yeah, so it was white it was white but with a little bit of a tinge, but it was so cool and weird and very esoteric but uh interesting very fun, yeah,
1: um, yeah, look that up yeah I mean the wine world is wild, wonderful, and there's so much going on so so there's always another wine to to taste and try out. Yeah. Um,
0: well, Konstantin, tell everyone where where they can
1: find you. Um, well, you can find me uh, in Baden-Baden, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, if you if you want, uh, check out my YouTube channel. Uh, it's just called Konstantin Baum, Master of Wine. Um, my Instagram handle is also Konstantin Baum underscore M W. And I also do TikTok, but no one watches them. So, so, so so you don't have to either. But, but yeah, Instagram and and YouTube—that's kind of where 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 it's at.
0: I've tried also, man. We're too old for TikTok. I think that's yeah, probably.
1: I I think I just don't. I I don't understand the format. I don't. I don't quite know how it works. Maybe I'll figure it out at some point. But, but yeah, it doesn't look like. No, again, I don't. Right I
0: think I think it's just of a different generation. I don't think our brains yeah. are wired to figure it out. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Constantine. Such an honor to meet you. And uh, yeah, very a nice talk to you, Dan. You. I really no, appreciate it, was, it.
1: It was a lot of fun. So that was we, the only thing that was missing was a glass of wine on the I table. I know, but but I guess it's too early for you right now. Simon, I mean, so. look, it's uh, it's five o'clock
0: somewhere, and it's later <laughs> than that where you are. So yeah, should have been drinking. True. <laughs> Uh, Thanks
1: again, buddy. All right. Yeah, nice talking to you.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.